0: This is the place where I paint traditionally. So this is an
1: easel and painting, and I have the palettes with colors and paints. In a tiny river town called Piensk on the Polish-German border, artist Greg Rukowski is taking us through his studio drenched in sunlight. Yeah, it's pretty bright. If you open the window, you can hear birds just outside. He's showing us his paints, his canvases, and his computer setup where he starts out his images with a tablet and Photoshop.
0: Usually I'm starting with the digital technique and then transferring to the canvas. Then I can paint it traditionally, so I have the physical painting to myself, so I could make an exhibition with it or sell it
1: online or whatever. And that's how I usually work. Greg's style has this very classic fantasy look to it.
0: You can see the dragons, knights, and battles and all that more epic scenes.
1: If you're a fan of games like Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons, well, those are actually some of his clients. So you've seen his work, along with a lot of other folks. But lately, Greg has been getting fewer commissions for original work. And he's pretty sure that he knows where that started.
0: I guess it was September 2022, something around that. It was a time where I started... Receiving a lot of messages from people that were concerned my particular name was used so many times that it started to be really weird. I spotted certain patterns on the internet. like I started noticing things like videos or images signed by my name, and I didn't know what's going on.
1: Turns out Greg's fans had been plugging his name into AI text-to-image generators like Midjourney to get art in his style. And the AI it was delivering. Greg felt violated.
0: From what I know, it's like impossible for AI to forget because it will still associate your images with certain tags.
1: He says that some of the AI image generators actually put a ban on using his name as a prompt, but that's not enough.
0: For instance, people will type in Dragon and still Dragon will be associated with my source files that are still in the database.
1: It's something we've been thinking about a lot here at Things That Go Boom because we have actually been using some AI art ourselves this season. You know, because it's a season about the internet, we thought it was cute.
0: My role is not to judge people like, you're bad because you're using AI. No, many people love my artworks and just trying to use my name to get certain results, and I'm not blaming them for that. My role is to just speak up and focus on the real problem, which is the source.
1: This might sound familiar, It's the same thing that has Hollywood's union actors and writers on the picket line right now.
2: We will not be having our jobs taken away and giving to robots. It's, I think, a very important time in uh, in these negotiations for both the writers and the actors to kind of set the ground rules for the future, because... If we don't stand tall right now, we are all going to be in jeopardy of being replaced by machines.
1: What you might not realize is what this story has to do with the people seeking asylum in the United States every day, and how their lives can be forever changed by similar large language models to the ones used to copy Greg's art.
0: Frankly, it's really terrifying and depressing.
1: Today on Things That Go Boom, what the models used to power AI mean for the people caught in the middle. And what the heck that has to do with how we decide who stays here And who goes. We're supposed to learn from our own mistakes, but other people's errors can be instructive too. From efforts to control the weather that went disastrously awry, to the untimely death of the Segway boss, history is a treasure trove of mishaps and meltdowns that can teach us all. I'm Tim Harford, host of Cautionary Tales, the podcast that mines the greatest fiascos of the past for their most valuable lessons. Listen to Cautionary Tales wherever you get your podcasts. Greg's not sure why exactly his work has been so popular on image generators. There might be a lot of overlap between Magic the Gathering vans and the AI curious, but it might also be that when the AI was asked to paint like Greg, it did a pretty good job.
0: Maybe it's because my style is a little bit more painterly, created as a digital work, and maybe it's much better source of information for generative AI to create the stylized images following this brush strokes and all this oily texture and things like that.
1: It could also be because of a couple of things that Greg does that have nothing to do with style. First, he paints a lot. And second, when he puts all of that work up online, he goes to the trouble of translating his pictures into text, loading up his paintings with super clear keywords and titles.
0: Like whenever I painted the dragon, I was making a description like, this is like the dragon on rock in the cave, like battlefield with some fantasy knights and things like that.
1: In other words, Greg just has a lot of product with his distinct name floating around out there for his fans and for AI to find. AI nerds might not mind it if we describe this as a high resource body of work, but you might wonder what exactly that means. To get a better idea, let's look at how AI researchers talk about languages, as in English, Spanish, those kind of languages, and the way that supercomputers are able to understand them.
2: So, in the AI research, languages that have more data to train AI models, effectively more digitized texts available on the internet, are considered high resource languages.
1: That's Andrew Deck. He's a reporter at the tech publication Rest of World.
2: So, most of the tools that we would consider part of the current AI boom are built using something called large language models, or LLMs. This includes chatbots, but also text-to-image generators.
1: Remember that image that went viral of Pope Francis swagged through the roof in a ridiculous white puffer jacket? That was thanks to an image generator. If you've ever used one, like DALI or MidJourney, to make a picture of something that you might find funny or interesting or just cool, you're relying on a huge bank of words, sentences, and stories to make the robot understand what you want.
2: DALI, for example, which was developed by OpenAI, it uses the company's largest language model called GPT-3.
1: As in ChatGPT's namesake. These AIs take billions and billions of units of text and billions and billions of JPEGs, and they make something new. But they need all of those previous examples in order to do it. On the flip side, when they don't have enough stuff, they flounder.
2: So a high-resource language includes English, probably first and foremost, but also Chinese, Spanish, French, Japanese, languages that have relatively little data available to train AI models. These are what we would call low-resource languages. So Low-resource doesn't necessarily mean they are the least spoken languages. A low-resource language is just the ones that are not as well represented on the internet.
1: Just look at Hindi.
2: One of the official languages of India, it has over 600 million speakers around the world. Some estimates say as much as 4% of the world's population speaks Hindi. But only 0.068% of the domains on the internet are in Hindi.
1: In his reporting, Andrew has come across one of the places where this disparity between low and high resource plays out and can lead to some huge problems translation, which is true even though some online translators, it's true, have gotten way better over the past 10 years.
2: We remember Google Translate circa 2008. We remember that this method had quite a few flaws, had <laughs> tons of errors, had a ton of misinterpretations. You are-
1: there's that one girl online who translates songs out of English and then back again. She's still doing it. But the early stuff, it was just wild.
3: In 2016,
1: something pretty big changed.
2: Google released quite a groundbreaking paper that argued for the use of a AI method called Neural Network Techniques machine translation. And neural network techniques, it's effectively using computers to process data in a way that is inspired by the human brain. So instead of simply translating, say, a discrete word or phrase, a neural machine translation method will document patterns in how two languages are translated, and it tries to predict the most accurate and human-like version of a translation. So Google quickly folded neural network techniques into its own translation products, and a lot of translation companies and other AI developers quickly followed suit in that. That said, to do neural machine translation requires huge data sets, and not just in one language, but in both languages in a translation pair. So to create a quality neural machine translation tool for English and Hindi, for example, again, there needs to be a ton of data in English and in Hindi, and also, ideally, a corpus of translated text between the two languages. So this is a very sophisticated method, but one that requires a lot of data to do effectively or to do well.
1: And when it's not done well, the consequences can be bigger than you might think.
2: In February of this year, when I connected with Respond Crisis Translation, It's a coalition of about 2,500 translators around the world. They have a dedicated team that works in Pashto and Dari, two of the most spoken languages in Afghanistan. And I connected specifically with someone named Uma Mirkel.
1: I am team lead for Afghan languages for Dari, Farsi, and Pashto. In 2020, Uma got a message from a Pashto-speaking woman who had fled the U.S. She was asking for help because she just had her request for asylum denied by a U.S. judge.
2: So in court, the judge, he had asked this asylum seeker something to the effect of, why does this document say that you were with other people, but you're telling me right now that you were alone during an incident that was really important to her asylum claim? And ultimately, the judge decided that there were too many discrepancies in her story and dismissed the asylum claim.
1: Turns out the aid organization that originally helped the refugee write her documents had used a machine translation tool. And
2: that tool had swapped all the I pronouns in the application for we pronouns. When I saw that document, I was totally shocked how that organization play with the future of an asylum seeker or a person who has trauma And this translation and also the consequences of this translation will uh, make double trauma. That's a small mistake under normal circumstances, and one we've probably observed in our own use of a product like Google Translate. But in the context of asylum court, it was life-changing for this specific refugee, and arguably... It came down to, I would say, the negligent use of a technology that hadn't been built with Pashto in mind or with enough dedicated resources to build it well.
1: Like Hindi, Pashto is not a small language. 40 million people speak it between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And it's not a super online language either. And that might be part of why UMA sees translation apps missing all kinds of things. Certain ways to describe emotions or pronouns, or military ranks.
3: When we receive a document and we receive a
2: translation, we read both of them and we recognize that whether it's translated by affiliated with the human brain or or it's
1: a machine translation. In this particular case, Uma was able to go through her documents and translate them properly so the claimant could file an appeal.
3: If it were not for Uma, as an extremely competent and qualified and passionate, and trauma-informed translator coming in and being able to intervene, we would not have even caught the error, right?
1: That's Respond Crisis Translation's founder, Ariel Koren.
3: It wasn't because of this person's story. It was because the machine did not do the job properly. And so this machine would have literally compromised this person's case in an extremely high-stakes scenario. And what we're seeing across the board is that for government contractors, large organizations, hospitals, clinics, it's really across the board, are trying to cut costs by using machines and failing to involve human translators in this work at all. It's not only a form of economic violence, but it is putting the folks who are forced to rely on these machines at risk.
1: Ariel's critique also applies to the U.S. federal government where machine translation is becoming a go-to tool without much oversight.
2: In 2019, ProPublica reported that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, officers there were instructed to use Google Translate to vet the social media accounts of asylum applicants.
1: And that's not all.
2: We take you down south to our border with Mexico, and while for years it's been predominantly Mexicans and Central Americans trying to come to this nation, in recent months we've
1: seen an uptick in Haitian migrants also chasing the American dream.
0: Thousands of migrants from Haiti, many of whom began their trek overland as far away as Colombia.
1: Images of people being corralled by agents on horseback, causing a firestorm of criticism. The U.S. southern border with Mexico has become the touchpoint for many Haitians trying to get away from natural disasters and political chaos. And when they get there, they're told that the way to kick off their asylum claim is with the Customs and Border Protection app.
3: And the app itself was, when it was rolled out, not available in Haitian Creole.
1: Activists in the Haitian diaspora and the translation community fought for the app to be translated into Haitian Creole. And they won. But when it was finally made available... Translators say that what it provided was useless word salad.
3: Sentences where no spaces were used between words. Um, There were no accent marks anywhere. Words were misspelled. Words were mistranslated. It was obvious to the translators
1: that it was a machine translation. They sat with the app and they tried to find ways to make the incomprehensible comprehensible so people could still try to make their case at the border.
3: But what the government is basically saying is that if you can't make sense of unintelligible gibberish that is produced by a machine where no human has been involved in order to supervise and oversee, then you can't apply for asylum. That's essentially the message that the government is sending.
1: And there's a possibility that that's the point. Thousands of asylum claims are denied to people who come to the U.S. border. A translation system that doesn't work can just be one more wall to keep people out. But Andrew Deck says there's also another motivation at play. For government contractors, selling translation machines is big business.
2: In our own reporting, we've shown that there's a web of for-profit translation providers. They have multi-million dollar contracts with U.S. government agencies, and they regularly advertise their machine translation services, including in Pashto and Dari and other low-resource languages. And we were able to find a paper trail that showed evidence of one company in particular actively pitching their machine translation product for an organization that explicitly works with asylum seekers.
1: Which could mean more crises, like the one that Uma caught at the last moment. A lot more. Because the immigration system is strained, people are waiting, and they need help making sense of their case.
2: I want to be careful in saying that the demand for translation in the immigration system is very real and it's very urgent. One figure that is top of mind for me in reporting this story was that in December of 2022 in the U.S. there was a backlog of 1.6 million asylum applicants pending in U.S. immigration courts and I believe that's a record-breaking number but I think what we're seeing with machine translation is that it's increasingly becoming a way to cut corners and cut costs in the face of this backlog and, in effect, sidestep the need for capable human translators and interpreters.
1: Coming up, what will it take to change our current relationship with our tools? And can small tech solve big tech problems?
3: That's after the break.
1: These days, Greg in Poland is fighting for one thing. He doesn't want to be used to train AIs anymore.
0: I think so far the best solution is to focus on public domain images and exclude all the living artists that can be affected like professionally. And to do that, I think they should rebuild the data sets.
1: On the other side of the world, in Ethiopia, AI developers are doing exactly that building new data sets that AI can learn from, with a focus on using data from their own languages, so that machine translation can work better. Andrew Jack the reporter from Rest of World, has spoken to some of them.
2: There's a real movement in the Global South among AI developers who are actively trying to develop AI models specific to the languages that they speak Blessan which is a machine translation startup in a, in Ethiopia. And the way that they're approaching that problem, that kind of bottleneck in training data, is going back to the source. They have created a grassroots campaign to collect offline resources, like books and magazines in Tigrinya and Amharic to create an entirely new custom data set for languages from the Horn of Africa.
1: They're even building a tool that can read these languages' unique script visually and turn it into something that a computer can process. This is happening again on a grassroots
2: scale. So it's maybe not at the speed that a company like Google or OpenAI or Meta would want it to be, but I think it is fascinating to see AI developers actually try to, rather than create models that can traverse hundreds or even a thousand different languages, which is an approach that Google is often trying to do. Instead, going back to the source to create language-specific models, starting over in a way to build technologies that are better suited to the communities of users that speak these languages.
1: But these solutions don't answer Silicon Valley's favorite question. Will it scale?
2: AI developers are looking frequently for the most scalable solution to the problem of low-resource languages instead of the solution that will have the best results. Maybe that's not a surprise. But I think it is concerning to me that in AI development and in the boom we're seeing with conversational AI, with machine translation, um, that many low-resource languages are being... It's not even that they're being left behind. It's that these developers are using English and other dominant languages as a medium to create tools for these low-resource languages. And often that creates more errors, more problems, and in the long-term,
1: possibly more harms. Ariel Koren, who works with 2,500 translators like Uma, says that even with those highly-resourced languages that are already all over the internet, her team is still seeing major problems for asylum seekers.
3: The unregulated growth of machine translation adoption poses a risk to nearly all asylum seekers, regardless of whether they speak a resource, like, quote unquote, resource versus under-resourced language.
1: That's because the idea of what is a highly resourced or under-resourced language for AI doesn't take into account how people use language in real life. Different dialects, different levels of literacy, and ability to speak the most formal versions of a language can make it harder to
3: find your own words understood by a machine. You know, we have a very active Chinese language team at Respond Crisis Translation. And even though you might assume that Chinese is a highly resourced language, the reality is that a lot of asylum seekers and refugees and migrants from China are at high risk of faulty machine translation outcomes because even many folks who do speak Mandarin are also likely to speak with strong influence of native local languages. For Ariel, the answer is simple. It's about
1: hiring more translators.
3: This is not a talent issue. This is an economic justice issue. This is a funding issue.
1: She told us that until more translators are hired, people will just keep falling through the cracks.
3: So I would ask folks who speak English as their only language and who have had the privilege of not having to encounter language barriers in high stakes scenarios, would you want critical information that would determine life or death outcomes? Would you want that information to be conveyed to
1: you? through a machine. When we take a step back, it looks like everyone from fantasy artists to refugees is facing the consequences of this technology. And while we see it change our landscape, it also keeps evolving faster than we decide how to use it. Last month in the New York Times, Palantir CEO Alex Karp called AI our Oppenheimer moment. He was trying to say that we need to go full speed ahead with what computers' and neural networks have to offer our defense systems. Like how scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer kept his head down and focused on building the tech behind the nuclear bomb, leaving the human impacts for higher-ups to think about.
3: Theory will take you only so far.
1: The problem is that after Nagasaki, Oppenheimer changed his mind. He wanted his weapons banned.
2: They won't fear it. Until they understand it. It
1: until they've used it. The point is, when we don't decide the ground rules, we don't just get a free pass. The deciding happens for us. Things That Go Boom is distributed by Inkstick Media and PRX. Don't forget to send your questions about the internet and security to boom at inkstickmedia.com so we can answer them in a special Q&A episode later this season. And while you're at it, leave us a review. They help folks find our little show out on the big wide web. This episode was produced by Katie Toth and me and edited by Christina Stella, Nikki Galtlin, and Sahar Khan. The music for our show is written by Darian Shulman, and Robin Wise makes each episode sound its very best. Thanks, as always, to the supporters and foundations that make our work possible, the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Plowshares Fund, as well as InkStick supporters, including the Cologne Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Prospect Hill Foundation, and the Jubitz Family Foundation. In two weeks, we'll be asking what fish can teach us about misinformation. See you then.
2: Are you currently at NPR's tiny desk or is that your no you're not that's that's an artificial
1: i mean i'm not very far away from there it's just down the street i use the tiny desk as my background because i am actually in my closet which has lovely sound but is much less cute than the tiny desk